Isaiah chapter 11. It was my intention when I sat down to study to do about the first half of this chapter. And after studying through the first two verses, that's about all we're going to cover this morning. That's all we're going to have time for. We will get into further uh, study and discussion on Wednesday night as well. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Father, would you illuminate us this morning with your truth? More than that, Father, I pray that you would uh, pave a clearer path for us in understanding your Holy Spirit. And in an openness, Father, to receiving your Holy Spirit, your power, your work. Lord, as, as Joe was praying earlier in these last days, Lord, we need more than ever your power for the continuance and the furtherance of the kingdom if we try to do things in our little strength, Lord. Uh, it won't be enough. We need far more than what we can do. And we praise you that you have offered your spirit to us, Jesus, to help us, to strengthen us, to comfort and counsel us, and to empower us to do things beyond ourselves. And I just pray that in these couple of verses this morning, packed in, Lord, with so much of the rest of your word, that you would speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we finally figured out, after 6,000 years of human civilization, that light makes a difference. Light makes a difference. You you find yourself feeling more lethargic this time of year? A little more gloomy? Just waiting for the spring to come, or better, the summer? I actually went out last week and ordered one of those sunlight lamps. It has the bulb that, that emulates sunlight. Because I moved my office around and I have my desk in the corner. It was normally in front of the window. Now it's in the corner, which is a better location for it, except that I was sitting there going, it's so gloomy. It's just dark and depressing and dreary. So I got one of those sunlight desk lamps. I'm very excited. Can't wait for it to get here. I'm sure the Bible teaching will be a little more energetic after that. <laughs> Light makes a difference. It was the early 80s when research scientists began recognizing a consistent pattern of symptoms of depression which became more severe during the long winter months. Really? Wow. It's a breakthrough in modern science. In 1982, they coined the phrase seasonal affective disorder, or SAD. In 1984, researchers discovered that exposure to bright light was highly effective in treating SAD. (laughs) Finally, in 2001, they learned why. They figured this out. I, I gotta share this is illuminating. I can share this with you. Dr. George Brainerd and his team at Thomas Jefferson Medical University identified a photoreceptor in the human eye. This nerve receptor connects the retina to a key place in the hypothalamus of the brain. And when light, especially within the bandwidth range of 447 to 484 nanometers, enters the eye, it activates the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus then sends a signal to the pineal gland. The pineal gland then shuts off immediately the sleep-inducing hormone melatonin, 
and begins to, begins to increase the production of the active hormone serotonin. Melatonin is what, when it gets dark, your body's naturally, it gets dark, your body just kind of gets sleepy because melatonin's being produced in your body naturally. And then when sunlight comes up and hits you in the, in the face, it, serotonin begins to, I know sometimes it takes a cup of coffee or two, but it, that's just to help the serotonin. And you brighten up. There is a brighter light. A light that revives us, a light that restores us, and it doesn't matter how dark the night or how dark the world is around us. There is a bright light that releases the joy of the Lord within us, which is why Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. And speaking, I believe, right into the heart of a northwest winter, Paul said, Awake, sleeper! Arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. There is joy in the Lord even in January. (laughs) The light of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 4.6 tells us, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the glory uh, of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now talking about this light who is Jesus who does give reviving to our lives and restoration and encouragement who lifts us up who energizes us to do the work of the Lord. This same Jesus is Emmanuel. God with us. And we've been talking about Emmanuel the last few weeks, haven't we? We're in what's called the book of Emmanuel. Isaiah chapter 7 through 12, many scholars have termed the book of Emmanuel because in these five chapters, Emmanuel is presented more than once and in some incredibly significant ways. In fact, there are four places where Emmanuel really shines through in these five chapters. Just consider this looking back. You may recall in chapter 7, verse 14, if you look at that quickly, the Lord first here declares that Emmanuel is the miraculous sign. He is the miraculous sign. Chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign, behold, a virgin will be with child and will bear a son and she will be called and she will call his name Emmanuel. So he's the miraculous sign, Emmanuel. That's the first entrance or introduction of him there in the book of Isaiah. Then we saw that great prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9 revealing that he is not only the miraculous sign but he is the mighty son. He's the mighty son. For a child will be born to us, chapter 9, verse 6. A son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and then on and on, talking about there will be no end to the increase of his kingdom, of his government. He's a miraculous sign. He's the mighty son. And if you skip ahead to the end of this section, chapter 12, You note this, the Lord finally explains the significance of this Emmanuel for all of mankind. Chapter 12, verse 2, which reads, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. Ever wonder why Jesus was named Jesus? His name means God saves. Yeshua. God saves. In fact, the phrase in verse 2, God is my salvation, is El Ani Yeshua. Jesus is right there. 
Emmanuel is our salvation. He is the means of salvation. He's the miraculous sign. He's the mighty son. He's the means of salvation, which is why Emmanuel is so significant. Emmanuel is not just the story game of a God come to earth to move about the people and see what life is like and then returning to heaven. It is the story. He is the story, the means of salvation. Had He not come, we would be lost. He came that we might be found, saved, washed clean, and brought home to live with Him forever. God is my salvation. El Ani Yeshua. Matthew 1.24, remember Gabriel said to Joseph, You shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. And Peter said in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 6, at the very end of this book of Emmanuel, verse 6, chapter 12, says, Cry aloud and shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion. For great, note this, great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. God with us. In our midst. Where is Gadosh Israel, the Holy One of Israel? In their midst. Where is Jesus? In our midst. But in a way, in a way that is different than even Gadosh Israel was in the midst of the people Israel. Jesus is in our midst today in a way that is different. And we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. We'll see in chapter 11 this morning that this miraculous sign, this mighty sign, this means of salvation is Messiah the Savior. Messiah the Savior. It's interesting, in the book of Isaiah, Jewish scholars and rabbis today, modern Jewish scholars, only accept a few chapters in this book as being what we would call messianic, about Messiah. Specifically, these are the chapters that, that, that your uh, conservative Jewish commentators and believers would accept. Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 20. And our passage this morning, Isaiah chapter 11. But Jews today reject Isaiah 53, which Joe just read to you. They reject Isaiah 53 as a messianic chapter. I was sitting back and listening to you read that, Joe, and I'm thinking, how could you miss this? What Jews will say today is that Isaiah 53, which talks about the suffering servant, they say the suffering servant is Israel. But what's stunning about it, and I know we're several chapters before we get there, but we're going to spend some time in that chapter. Isaiah 53, they say, is about the suffering servant who is Israel. Even though Isaiah is prophesying about it, and he's saying, us and we are saved by this one. It's very clear it's an individual that is saving us. But they choose not to look at that. Why is that? Well, many reasons. I think at the top of the list, it's just too obvious. Because if you read Isaiah 53 and you take that as a description of Messiah, you have to believe Messiah is Jesus. There is no other person that fits that precise historical description, even though it's prophetic, even though it was given 700 years ahead of time, it is so absolutely specific that to read it, you either have to accept Jesus or reject Him. And if you reject Jesus, then you have to reject that Isaiah 53 has anything to do with Messiah. So only four chapters in this entire book are considered by Jews today to be messianic, Isaiah chapter 11 being one of them. Let me tell you something. You can read Isaiah chapter 11 and see Jesus all over the page. 
That's the thing. As, as people try to narrow down passages of Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, that they believe might be about Jesus, that's fine. Keep narrowing it down because you can't miss Him. He is everywhere. He's in all four of these messianic sections of Isaiah that the Jews would accept. So that's not a problem. If you don't want to go to Isaiah 53, fine. We'll go there later, but stick with me in Isaiah chapter 11. But listen, if you are feeling gloomy today, this is a great place to be. Jesus, who is the Anointed One, who is Messiah, Emmanuel, Savior, He is also the one Isaiah called the Great Light. Back in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark land, the light will shine on them. So here is the antidote this morning to being a gloomy Gus. Or Gusina, I don't know. <laughs> if you don't want that, fix your rods and cones on Emmanuel. Verse 1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. <laughs> then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Then, if you see the word then, you need to ask the question, when? Okay, if it starts with then, don't just go forward, go back. Wait a minute, what do you mean then? Then a spring or a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. It's written in the context of what Isaiah prophesied in chapter 10 which is the chopping down of the great nations. If you were here Wednesday night, we studied that. It's a remarkable chapter. Prophetic not only of the coming of Assyria to conquer Israel and then Assyria itself to be wiped out, but prophetic of the very end. Speaking of things like Antichrist, in fact, in chapter 10, I encourage you to go back and listen to it, we actually get to see Antichrist's battle plan laid out. In Isaiah chapter 10, his marching orders, the direction that he attacks Jerusalem from. It's amazing. So we studied that, but, but check this out. Verse 33 tells us, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop off the boughs with a terrible crash. Chapter 10, verse 33. Those who are tall in stature will be cut down. Those who are lofty will be abased. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron axe. And Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. What Isaiah lays out here prophetically is the picture of, of, a, of clear-cutting a forest. Just clear-cutting it. God's deforestation of the nations is what you could call this. Isaiah is saying the nations are coming against Israel as though they were mighty forests marching in and surrounding Jerusalem and God's going to cut them all down. But imagine an old stump sitting there in the midst of a massive encroaching forest. And even as these mighty trees begin to fall, one after the other, a single shoot springs out of the stump. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. The word shoot there in the Hebrew is koter. It means a rod or a branch or a twig. It's just that little first sign of life in an old trunk, an old stump that looks dead otherwise. The word stem in the NASB, stem, a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, is Gezah. Gezah means a stump. So you picture that stump, that cut down tree. And, and Israel, Judah, they were cut down. The once glorified, mighty, wonderful nation of Israel under David ended up cut off. And then a little shoot springs up out of the stump. The stump of Jesse. Now stop and think about that for a minute. The stump of Jesse. This is what that once kingly line of Judah was reduced to. The stump 
of Jesse. This kingly line. Jesse himself wasn't a king. But the shoot that springs from Jesse, you know, will be. In the midst of the felling of the mighty nations, quietly, unexpectedly, out of the humble stump of Jesse, a shoot branches out and flowers and bears fruit, and the shoot is Messiah. Now, I don't think I'm telling you anything that you don't know yet, but listen, these are the kinds of circumstances in which the Lord loves to work. Not in mighty, glorious trees, but cut-off trees. Not in fantastic, impressive programs, but He just loves to work out of the unexpected, humble circumstances, lowly places, cut-off people. Those who are bedraggled, stumps and trunks and mangers and barns. God loves to work in those humble circumstances. So where are you at in your life? Are you in a humble place, perhaps? Maybe not something as mighty as those around you. You look around, you see others. Your same age, your same, same station in life, your same class. <laughs> and they're doing mighty things, and you think, I, I'm just one of the little people. I'm the 99, you know. <laughs> I'm just a little stump. What can God do with me? James chapter 1, verse 9 says, The brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. Note that. James doesn't say the humble brother is to glory. He says the brother who's in humble circumstances. He's not talking about an attitude. He's talking about a place, a position. If you are in a humble place, glory in that. Because that's where God is. That's where He loves to work. He says the rich man in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. So the humble circumstance, the humble station, that's the place God loves to work. And when there was nothing left of the kings of Judah but a stump of former glory, a shoot sprang up from Jesse. Why Jesse? Why not David? Why not say a shoot sprang from David? Because you mention the name David, even to Jews today, and all the glory, all the wonder. David, the great king. David was awesome. Those were the days, huh? When David was around. David is our model of the the man's man. And the woman's man too, apparently. (laughs) David! Why why is it Jesse? Do, Do you know what we know about Jesse? Nothing! Except that he lived in Bethlehem. Oh yeah, he was in the line of Judah. We can trace that back. But what what was Jesse's job? Anyone know? We don't know. What what kind of a home did he have? We don't know. He had eight boys. You know, was married. We don't know anything else. There's some guesses. There's some surmise out there about his wife, about David's background, all that. We've talked about some of that before, but we don't know much about Jesse. Gang, Jesse was an unknown man from a podunk clan. It's a good way to look at it. Too little to be among the thousands in Judah. Micah 5 verse 4 tells us. Bethlehem is too little even to be considered among the clans of Judah. Podunk man from an unknown clan. Or an unknown man from a podunk clan. It really works either way. But I want you to think for a minute about the story. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. This is a good story for gloomy days. Turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 
First Samuel 16, or or a flip in your iPhone. You can do that too, <laughs> right, Lane? <laughs> I have no problem if you're using your uh, your cell phone for a Bible. That's great. Just turn the sound off. Okay. <laughs> First Samuel 16, verse one. Follow this story through. It's marvelous. Now the Lord said to Samuel, "How long will you grieve over Saul?" since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. Samuel is bitterly bummed out here. Samuel's in a bad place. Saul, his longtime friend, and and the king of Israel, the one that he had anointed, the one that, that Samuel thought, here's our man. You know, Saul, Saul, here's our man. He anoints him. He's got to be the great king. He's he's tall in stature. He has all the look of the kind of guy you want for a king. And he turns out to be a dismal failure. And a great disappointment. And in his despair, Samuel is just awash in sorrow and even self-pity. Samuel's just bummed out. Ever, Ever been disappointed by someone you had high hopes in? I mean, how common is that? Part of the problem is that human beings are always disappointing. Think about this. We have something hardwired into our spirits, a desire to worship. Everybody has it. And the problem is if we place that desire in other people, it bums us out because other people cannot live up to it. doesn't matter who they are. If we place that desire in God, we are never disappointed. But when we do it in one another, and we do it even inadvertently, we do it in relationships. I was just counting on him. I thought she would stick with me through this. And when people let us down, we're depressed. We get gloomy. It's like January in the Northwest. And here's Samuel. So what does the Lord do? What does the Lord do? He, He says, how long will you grieve? So Samuel's in this grieving process. He's bummed out. And the Lord barely even addresses Samuel's pity party. In fact, he doesn't join him in it at all. He just says, Samuel, well, he gives him some things to do. Let's go forward here. One of the best things you can do when you are in despair or when you are depressed or when someone's let you down is get up and move forward. Move forward with the Lord. Replace that worship that you may have had in another person. Put it back on Jesus. My pastor's let me down. Great. Put it back on Jesus. Well, my shepherds have let me down. Put it back on Jesus. A brother in the Lord has not been for me what I thought he should be. Put it back on the Lord. Get your worship off man. And put it where it belongs, on Jesus Christ alone. And you'll find you're far more understanding. I find, I'll personalize it, I am far more understanding of brothers and sisters in Christ when I'm worshiping Jesus and I see everybody else as my brothers and sisters who are just like me. Sorry about that. (laughs) look what God commands Samuel to do in the face of depression he says number one fill up fill up Samuel I want you to fill up your horn with oil now the obvious intention is take that horn fill it up with oil I'm going to take you over to anoint a new king but consider this especially in midwinter gloom 
Psalm 132.17, he says, I will cause the horn of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed. You realize as Samuel was filling up his horn with oil, it wasn't just to anoint David, it was to prepare the line for the coming of Messiah, the light of the world. Fill up! Fill up your horn with oil. A thousand years later, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, in Luke chapter 1, verse 68, said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, His servant. Messiah is on the way, Zechariah prophesied. Fill up your horn with oil. Now you all know this. But oil and anointing in the Bible always speaks of the Holy Spirit of the living God. If you're depressed, fill up your horn with oil. Fill up with the Holy Spirit. Be Spirit-filled. Because ultimately, the oil-filled horn of David did come in the person of Jesus. The Spirit-filled Messiah came and walked among us and then said something remarkable. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll tell you what it is in a little while. But first thing you do is you fill up. Fill up your horn with oil. And if you're bummed out at all this morning, maybe you just need a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. Second, second, clean up. Fill up and clean up. He says, take a heifer and make a sacrifice. Now we know about the red heifer. Numbers chapter 19 gives us the reason for the sacrifice of the red heifer. What is it? purification. They were to take the ashes of a red heifer and mix it with water, and this was used for purification, especially from dead things. And the temple was to be purified, and the priests were to be purified by use of the red heifer. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 tells us, We know when He appears we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. It's interesting, the red heifer, even today, is seen by Jews as the sign of the coming of Messiah. If they could find a spotless red heifer, they believe that that's preparation for the coming of Messiah because with a spotless red heifer, then they can prepare all the implements of the temple and the priesthood, and then Messiah will come. That's Jewish theology. The red heifer, clean up. I want you to go make a sacrifice of the red heifer. Fill up. The horn with oil. Clean up. Make a sacrifice. Number three, get up. The Lord says to Samuel, get up. Go to the king of my choosing. And if you are bummed out, get up and go to the Lord. Get up and go to Bethlehem. Get up and go to Jesus. Isaiah 9-7 tells us there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So when life is glum, when life is dark, get up and go where the king is. Go where the king is. How do I do that practically? Well, one easy way, get up and go to church, which I did this morning. Go where the king is worshipped. Go where the king is honored. Go to a small group where there are other Christians you can be in fellowship with where the discussion and the focus and the talk is about the Lord. Because then we're fixing our eyes on Jesus. Put yourself in a place where Jesus is honored. Fill up, clean up, get up. So Samuel did. He went to Bethlehem and he met this Jesse, this unknown, this podunk town, 
And he says, do you have any sons? And Jesse begins to march his sons in front of Samuel. The first one comes in. Samuel sees him and goes, oh boy, yeah, that, that's the one. Uh, uh, which one? Eliab was the first guy, verse 6 there. Oh, he's the one, right, Lord? And the Lord says, no, 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 not him. Keep looking. Oh, okay. Sorry, son. Second one. Second one comes up there. Verse 8. It's Abinadab. Whatever. Doesn't matter. He wasn't anointed, right? Okay. Abinadab comes up, passed before Samuel. The Lord has not chosen this one either. Verse 9. Jesse made Shema pass by. The Lord has not chosen this one either. Seven sons. I mean, it's like a Cinderella story. You know? Seven sons are marched before Samuel. He goes, this one, Lord? No. This one, Lord? No. This one, Lord? No. No. Seven misjudgments by Samuel until finally Samuel asks in verse 11, are these all the children? (laughs) And he said, there remains yet the youngest. Behold, he's tending the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Verse 12. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, which means red-haired, and beautiful with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. Must have been Irish. And the Lord said... <laughs> I think in the Good News Bible it actually says he river-danced in. I'm not sure. <laughs> and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And watch this. The Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Samuel brightened up. Got up, he filled up the horn. He cleaned up. But it all, listen, it all started with Jesse. With Jesse, this unknown man from a podunk clan. Go back to Isaiah chapter 11. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Now you Bible students already know this. The Hebrew word for branch used right here is netzer from which we get the word Nazarene. A netzer from his roots will bear fruit. Matthew tells us this is prophetic right here. There is an indication, there's a reason why that specific word was chosen and used in this place. Matthew 2.23 says, They came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. And this is about the only place in the Hebrew Scripture that we can find where that is spoken. Where that is said. But you can't see it in English. You've got to see it in Hebrew. And you see it in Hebrew, and you see that he is a netzer. He is a branch. He is a Nazarene. Interesting. The branch personified is Jesus, the Nazarene. He branches out, and this is when things start to get interesting. Fill up, clean up, get up, and number four, brighten up. Verse two. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What does it mean the spirit of the Lord will rest on him? This is talking about Jesus. As Pastor Rick, you claim or you seem to be saying that it is. What does it mean the spirit of the Lord will rest on him? By that, by the way, that that plane taken off? That's Stephen Sweeney. 
Stephen Sweeney, our saxophone player, he was here just briefly this weekend doing some stuff with the Navy. And he said, if you hear, if you hear planes taking off tomorrow morning, that's me. So Stephen won't be playing in worship this morning. <laughs> I was praying that his plane would have trouble, you know, not in the air. <laughs> On the ground. On the ground so that he could swing in here. And, but So, bye, Stephen. Brighten up. What does it mean that the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him? And second question, how will this help me brighten up? So sit with me here in this verse for a minute. Spirit of the Lord. Ruach Yahweh. Ruach Yahweh, Spirit of the Lord. I love the word that follows, rest. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, and the word rest is nuach. And it means to settle or to light to rest, to settle, to light. So when the Ruach nuachs, things get brighter. Maybe you can remember it that way. When the Spirit rests upon you, when the Spirit alights on you, when the Spirit settles on you, things get brighter. You can see more clearly. You can understand better. Matthew 3.16 tells us, After being baptized, Jesus came immediately up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and He saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on Him, resting on Him. Nuach. If the Hebrew was being used there, it's not as in the Greek, but if it was written in Hebrew, it would say, the Nuach, the Ruach, Nuach. The Spirit lighted, rested on Jesus. And it was in that moment, now listen, this is important, it was in that moment when Jesus, who had set aside His heavenly glory, was now empowered by the Spirit of the Lord for ministry. There have been all kinds of things written about Jesus, guesses, uh, and, and even some old books that didn't make it into the canon of Scripture about Jesus as a young boy. You know, the, the story that He and his and His friends were making Little clay pigeons, and then Jesus' pigeon flew away, you know. Things like that. I don't believe Jesus had, listen, the power until, until the Holy Spirit came upon him. But he's Jesus, right? Yeah. But he set aside the glory. Paul says in Philippians 2, he emptied himself when he came to live among us. So, setting aside the power, not having any other power other than any other human being, until His baptism, and at His baptism, the Holy Spirit is poured out on Him. Now, the miracles begin. Now, the power is seen. But understand, that doesn't mean Jesus then became God. He was still God before. How do you know that? He was conceived by the Spirit. He is of the Lord. Understand, it was in this moment, at His baptism, when Jesus, who set aside heavenly glory, is now empowered by the Spirit for ministry. And that's when the people saw a great light. In fact, it was after Matthew 3, His baptism, it was in Matthew 4, where Matthew quotes Isaiah and says, Then the people saw a great light. Why didn't people really recognize Jesus for who He was before that time? Because they didn't see the great light. Yes, as a 12-year-old, he impressed them in the temple with his knowledge, with his understanding of the Word. But he didn't. no one had seen anything miraculous, anything supernatural. He was no different than anyone else. And then suddenly at his baptism, the Spirit comes on him. 
And when he begins his public ministry, things start to happen. And people are taking notice. And there's something very different about this man. Great light. Wait a minute here. So, so Jesus received the Holy Spirit. Was there a time when he was without the Holy Spirit? And the answer is no. No. To say Jesus was ever without the Holy Spirit would be like saying there was a time that I was bereft of the Spirit of Rick. Do you understand that? Who I am was there. You can't say there was ever a time when I didn't have my Spirit. Now follow this through a little bit further. He was conceived by the Spirit. He was the Son of God, meaning He is God. And remember what the angel Gabriel told Mary. The the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Why? Because He is born of the Spirit. Matthew 1.20, the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Listen, the stem of Jesse doesn't just have God's Spirit with him, like you and me. The stem of Jesse... Let me, let me put it this way. Isaiah reveals that the Spirit of the Lord is the Spirit of the stem. The Spirit of the Lord is the Spirit of Emmanuel. The Spirit of the Lord is the Spirit of Messiah. In the same way that the Spirit of Rick, this is my who I am, it's, the Spirit of Rick is my spirit. The Spirit of Jesus is the Spirit of the Lord. Now, some of you are like, yeah, I, I get that, that's okay. Don't jump ahead of this. This is so absolutely critical to understand in our faith and in knowing what the Holy Spirit is sent to do and in who the Holy Spirit truly is. Mm-hmm. Now watch this, follow this through with me. How many attributes of the Spirit are there in verse 2? Leslie says seven. Anybody disagree? Not to put Leslie on the spot. I happen to agree with her. Count them. The Spirit of the Lord, number one. The Spirit of Wisdom, two. And understanding, three. Counsel, four. Strength, five. Knowledge, six. And the fear of the Lord, seven. Seven attributes of the Spirit. We can count them out. And what does the number seven speak of in Scripture? Completion. We have a complete picture here of the Spirit of God as given to us in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. Oh, but Rick, you can't include the Spirit of the Lord as one of the seven attributes, can you? Oh, but you can. If you're wondering about that, I see six attributes of the Spirit of the Lord. No, the Spirit of the Lord is part of the six. There are seven And you can include the Spirit of the Lord. What do you mean? Turn over to Revelation chapter 1. Keep your finger there in Isaiah. Or someone else's finger, whatever works for you. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you, he says, and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. That's the Father. God the Father. Him who is and who was and who is to come. And and in verse 5 we see, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and releases us from our sins by his blood. So Jesus. So you have Father. Now you have the Son. But you may have noticed I skipped the latter part of verse 4. Look at that. And from the seven spirits who are before His throne. 
Whoop. The seven spirits before His throne. Seven spirits? I had enough trouble with the three in the Trinity and now you're telling me there are seven spirits of God? John's going to do it three more times. Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. And Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. He says in all four of these places, including chapter 1, he mentions the seven spirits of God. What is he talking about? The Jewish mind would absolutely get this. The Jewish scholar or student of the day would understand the seven spirits before the throne. Man, that should call attention to the spirit of the Lord. Why is that? Bible students, what was it that lit up the holy place in the temple? The lampstand. The lampstand. Let's all say it together. The lampstand. Okay, good. Maybe I need to go back a bit. In the tabernacle or the temple, there were seven pieces of furniture. Seven's a big number with the Lord. Seven pieces of furniture as you went into it. Okay, When you get into the holy place, there were three. The holy place is the place right before, before the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the Holy of Holies. The Ark of the Covenant would be seen as the throne. All right, The mercy seat on top of the Ark. So in the holy place, before the throne, three pieces of furniture. If you went into the holy place, on the right-hand side, you'd see the table of showbread. Fresh bread put out every day as Jesus is the bread of life. Straight in front of you, right up against the veil, was the altar of incense, a golden altar where incense was offered to the Lord, and it's a picture of prayer. And the priest would keep that incense burning 24-7 as prayers to the Lord. But on the left side, illuminating the entire holy place, was the lampstand, the menorah. That golden lampstand. Exodus 25.31 says, You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand and its base and its shaft are to be made of hammered work. Its cups, its bulbs, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. So one pure piece of hammered gold. Six branches. Now, now get this picture, gang. Six branches go out from its side. Okay, So you got one on this side and one over here. There's two, and another one, and another one, three and four, and another one, and another one, four and five, six branches, three on either side of this lampstand. And then you've got the central shaft. Six branches, but how many lamps? Seven. Because you have a lamp on every one of the branches, and you have a lamp on the central shaft, so you've got seven lamps on this thing. Exodus 25:37. make its lamps seven in number. They shall mount its lamp so as to shed light on the space in front of it. And that light on that golden lampstand would light up the holy place, lighting up the, the golden altar of incense, lighting up the golden table of showbread. It would be a just beautiful sight in there. And that menorah was big. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, they have a copy of the menorah, a golden copy of it that you can see. And it's about three feet, three feet taller than me, maybe ten feet tall. I mean, it's a big lampstand. This would sit there in the holy place to illuminate it. In Isaiah's, watch this, in Isaiah's description of Messiah, he says the Spirit of the Lord is the central shaft. The Spirit of the Lord the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So you have those six attributes and you have the central shaft, which is the spirit of the Lord. All seven of these are the Holy Spirit or a picture of the Holy Spirit. Do you get that? 
Now, stay with me on this. The Spirit of the Lord is the central shaft. Therefore, the Spirit of the Lord is the core of His being. The Spirit of the Lord is the core of the being of this stem of Jesse. Acts chapter 2, verse 4 refers to Him as the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 5, verse 9 refers to Him as the Spirit of the Lord. Acts chapter 16, verse 7, Paul calls Him the Spirit of Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, Paul calls Him the Spirit of Christ. Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul calls Him the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Now what are you saying, Rick? I'm saying the Bible is clear that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three distinct personalities of the one and same God. So unified that the Spirit of Christ is His Spirit to give. They are distinct, but they're also one. Three persons, one God. That hurts to think about. I know, it should. He's God. This whole idea of the Trinity is, is an amazing concept. And it is, it is beyond our full understanding. It truly is. But Jesus is as much God as God the Father, is God as the Holy Spirit, is God. Three equal but separate persons within the oneness of who God is. And the lampstand is such a beautiful picture of that. Because you have these attributes, but you also have the core, who is the Holy Spirit. What are you pushing this on us, Rick, for? (laughs) Well, understand what the Bible says about Jesus. He was baptized and he received the empowering of the Holy Spirit. But he already had the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Okay? In the same way that the Spirit of Rick is the Spirit of Rick, except that the Spirit of Rick doesn't have the power. (laughs) There's something different about the way you and I receive the Spirit from how Jesus received the Spirit. But this is what's remarkable to me, is that we can receive the Spirit. Not to replace our Spirit, not to become mini-gods ourselves, but to have His Spirit alongside us, dwelling within us. Jesus had the empowering of the Spirit within Him and alongside Him, but He also had at the core of His being, He is the Spirit. He is God. But for you and me, it's slightly different. Turn over to John chapter 14. John 14. Verse 16. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper, that He may be with you forever. And of course, He's speaking about the Holy Spirit. The word Helper there, parakletos, which means to come alongside, to help. But the word before it, and I want you to note this, the word another is alos in the Greek. You might note that in your Bible margins or tag it somehow on your iPhone. I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper. The word another is alos and it means literally another of the same quality. Another of the same quality. Um, to explain that, Chuck Smith uses a great example. He says if you go to a, to a rental car place and you go in there and, you, and you've ordered you know, an SUV... 
and they say, I'm sorry, we have no SUVs, we're going to give you another car, and they bring out, you know, a little Ford Escort. And you're like, but I, I wanted four-wheel drive. You don't know what I'm going to do to this thing. And it, it's another one, but it's not the same. There's a different Greek word that would describe another car that's not the same quality. This word, allos, describes another of the We don't have, you know, this particular SUV, but we're going to give you another SUV of the same standard, of the same quality, of the same material and makeup. That's what Jesus is saying. When he says another helper, he's saying one of equal weight, one that is equal to me. And he will be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. Note this. I will come to you. Wait, Jesus. You said you were going to give us another helper. I am. And I will come to you. Huh? My spirit. I will send to you. How does he do it? I have no idea. But he does. And there are some things in Scripture that we just say, wow, that that literally blows my mind. But the Bible says it. So I accept it. The Spirit of Jesus, the Holy Spirit gang, is Messiah's Spirit. I have His Spirit in me. He has made His abode with me, Jesus says. And I still have my Spirit. But His Spirit affecting and involved in and changing and altering my spirit to make me more like Him. Marvelous. But here's where it gets really bright. Go back to Isaiah 11. If His Spirit is with me, the same Spirit of Emmanuel described in chapter 11, verse 2, then that means I can share in and be empowered by the same attributes. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. These things are natural attributes of the Spirit of Christ, of Christ Himself, of of the Godhead. And these attributes can be and are intended to be yours and mine as we are empowered by this same Spirit. Why, some might ask, don't I experience those things? Why don't I experience wisdom and understanding? Why do I lack counsel or strength or knowledge or or even the fear of the Lord? This empowerment is supposed to be our expectation for this dispensation. For this time in history, the Bible tells us we should expect this power of the Holy Spirit to be on and in believers in the body of Christ. This is what we're supposed to see. This is what we're supposed to have. At the feast of Shavuot, Pentecost, you know it, Peter explained the power of the Holy Spirit that had come upon him and the other apostles this way, Acts chapter 2, verse 16. He said, this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. It shall be in the last days, God says, I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my bond slaves, both men and women. In those days I will pour forth of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. Peter draws off the prophecy of Joel. It's chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. He takes that prophecy of Joel, and he says, this is what's happening here and now. Well, 
But was that just for the apostles? No! There is nothing in the Bible that says the power of the Holy Spirit ceased with the last of the apostles. Nothing. You cannot find it. We are told that these attributes, the attributes we see in verse 2, are for us. These are the attributes of the Spirit of God. And He says, I want to give them to you. I want you to function by these things. I want you empowered. In the same way I empowered my my son Jesus. You know why I believe Jesus was baptized and the Holy Spirit came upon Him and, and He and the Father and the Spirit, why they worked it out to be that way? Why didn't He just come blasting into the world empowered as He was by the Spirit? Why did He wait? Why at His baptism? Because Jesus was saying, let me show you what you will be like when you have faith in Me. You will receive My Spirit. He says, greater things than these you will do. And the apostles did, by the way. Greater things than we saw Jesus do, we saw the apostles do. When did we ever see Jesus' shadow fall on someone and they were healed? It happened with Peter. doesn't mean Peter was greater than Jesus. But he was empowered by the Spirit of Jesus. And here we sit in 2012. And far too many Christians are sitting there going, I lack these things. I don't have these things. Gang, it is gloomy out there. It is dark in this world. We need more of the lampstand in this place to do what God has called us to do in this place. We need to be lit up. We need to brighten up. And all we have to do to receive more of the Spirit of God is to ask Him for it. Father, would You empower me by Your Holy Spirit to do Your work and to do Your will? To have these things that, that, that we talk about here, the, the wisdom, understanding, counsel, strength, knowledge, fear of the Lord. I was going to go one by one through them. We'll do that Wednesday night. But these characteristics, I want to function in these and with these and by these. Why? So that I can have an impact for the kingdom now in these dark last days before Jesus comes. Not running on my own strength. You know what happens when you run on your own strength? You get tired, man. It is exhausting. I know, because I've been trying to do it the last few weeks. You know, since we started, it hit me this week, since we started third service, Sundays have been wiping me out. I get home at about 7 o'clock, and I'm just... (laughs) (laughs) And Sunday afternoon, i got like two hours, I go home, I have lunch, I, I try to get some rest, and I'm back here. I've been trying to do it on my own power. I don't need to worry about that. Not if I have the the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And that's just one kind of lame example. But if we are trying to run in ministry, in our lives, on our strength, gang, we're going to be tired, we're going to be depressed, we're going to be gloomy. We might as well just turn off the lights and go to bed. But Paul said, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Jesus said, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? You know what that indicates? God wants to give us His Spirit. God wants to pour out on this fellowship, on our lives, to do what He wants to accomplish, not what Pastor Rick thinks we need to do. Trust me, if we go by what I think we should do, we're in trouble. But He has a plan here. And He has from day one. And if we will allow His Spirit, if we will call out to, if we will ask for His Spirit, gang, greater things will happen than we have ever seen. 
Well, Pastor, I get a little uncomfortable whenever the Holy Spirit is talked about. Let me tell you something. We need not fear the Spirit of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14.31, you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. You know what that means? It means you're not out of control. You don't fall into a trance. I know I have a word for the, from the Lord. That's not how it works. You don't suddenly wake up and go, wow, I don't know, I've been here like 24 hours and I don't even know what happened. That's not how it works. Paul says, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. He does not want to confuse. He doesn't want to freak out. He doesn't want to rile up. What He wants to do is empower His people to do His work. And He wants to minister to His people, one to another, by the power of His Spirit. And these attributes of the Spirit of the Lord, gang, these are not confusing things. Look at them just one more time. Wisdom. I don't want any of that wisdom stuff. (laughs) Understanding. Keep that away. Counsel, strength, knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. Are these not things that you desire? Are these not things that God says, I want you to have? Who doesn't want to understand more of the Lord? Who doesn't want more strength than we have in our physical bodies? Who says, I'd just rather be stupid? (laughs) The knowledge of the Lord comes from the Spirit of the Lord. We're going to talk more about this on Wednesday, but there's one last thing I want to tell you to help move us out of the gloom and into the brightness of the Spirit of the Lord. Skip down and look at verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 11 and watch this. In that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal or banner for the peoples, and his resting place will be literally glory. His resting place will be glory. But do you hear what Isaiah just did? If you're contrasting verse 1 and verse 10, listen to verse 1. A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Verse 10, in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse. He was the shoot of Jesse and now he's the root of Jesse. The root is the shoot. The shoot is the root. What does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus, Messiah, Emmanuel, comes before Jesse and he precedes David, which is what he said in Revelation 22.16, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. Don't miss those words. I'm the root I came before and I'm the descendant I came after. Well, who could do that? God could. The Spirit of the Lord. But did you notice who resorts to or literally seeks out the root of Jesse? The nations. The nations were chopped down at the end of chapter 10. The word nations here, gang, it's a favorite Jewish word to be applied to Gentiles. It is the goyim. The goy. It's you and me. And I think that's awesome. The nations, the goyim, are going to seek out the root of Jesse, which is exactly what you're doing this morning. We're seeking out the root of Jesse. Gang, the clouds are lifting. Paul says in Romans 15, verse 8, I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision, that is to the Jews, 
on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And, and Christ has become a servant for the Gentiles to glorify God for His mercy as it is written, Therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. And again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with His people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise Him. And again Isaiah says, and he quotes Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. Emmanuel. And it's His Spirit that is offered to you and offered to me. Now some of you might say this morning, Rick, I was born again 40 years ago. Fantastic. Maybe you need a fresh refilling of the Holy Spirit. Fill up the horn. Some say, well, I gave my life to Jesus. I don't know that I've ever really been filled with the Holy Spirit like like you're talking about here. Ask Him. Because I'll tell you something. Until this fellowship is open to the power of God and His Spirit working in and among us, we will not accomplish what He has called us to accomplish. Until that happens, we will just be a church like so many others where people come and they go and we all wonder, why is our growth nothing more than transfer growth? It's one of the biggest problems in the church today, transfer growth from one church to another instead of new growth, fresh growth, people who have never known the Lord before coming to the Lord. That happens, gang, in the day of His power. That happens when a people begin to gather together and say, give us your spirit. Father, it's your spirit we need to accomplish your will. And I'm praying, Lord, that you will teach us and open our hearts and prepare us in this season to receive more of your Spirit. Not to be off the wall, Father, but to be in your will. To be directed by you. Sensitive to spiritual things as you are. Walking like Jesus did. We recognize, Lord, that anyone who gives their life to Christ receives the Holy Spirit. You come, you make your home there. And we thank You that You are with us in such a personal and intimate way. But we also recognize, Lord, that You said there would be a a power given, an outpouring, an additional uh, gifts for ministry and strength. And it's this that I pray for, Lord. I'm asking, personally, for me, Lord, pour out Your Holy Spirit upon me that I might serve You better. And I pray for our fellowship, Lord. Pour out Your Holy Spirit upon us that we might decrease and You might increase here among us. That Your presence would be so felt that this area would be dramatically changed. Lost people found and saved because of the work of Your Spirit. Fill us and use us, Lord. 